Okay, well, as we start having our virtual room fill up, I just want to welcome you today uh, to the International Women's Day. We're going to have an extraordinary conversation with women, women that have really been, you know, role models for so many women coming up in foreign policy. So a lot of our panelists today go without introduction, but in order to introduce you to these extraordinary women, I'm just going to spend a few seconds, and then we're going to talk um, about what each of them has brought to the foreign policy community and their role at the State Department. So all right, we're really pleased to have with us today Catherine Beamer. She is a National Security Affairs Fellow for the academic year of 2021 to 2022 here at the Hoover Institution. She is a, a career foreign service officer um, and previously served as a deputy counselor of the political, economic, and commercial section uh, in Bolivia, as well as a series of other postings. Uh, Dr. Jindai Frazier is the, do, oh boy, I should have asked how to pronounce this, the do not, doinan, oh, uh, distinguished visiting fellow at the Dignan, Hoover. Dignan. Dignan, thank you. The Dignan Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution. She previously served as the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs from 2005 to 2009. Kyron Skinner is the W. Glenn Campbell Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Taub Professor for International Relations and Politics at Carnegie Mellon University's Institute for Politics and Strategy. She previously served as the Director for Policy Planning and Senior Advisor to the Secretary of State. And finally, Condoleezza Rice is the Tad and Diana Taub Director of the Hoover Institution and the Thomas and Barbara Stevenson Senior Fellow on Public Policy. You might all know her best for her work that she did as the uh, 66th Secretary of State of the United States from 2005 to 2009. So it is really an honor to be with you all today. And I wanted to take a second first to really explain to the audience how you got to the State Department uh, and what your role was at the State Department. So maybe, Catherine, maybe we'll start with you. Sure, thank you, Jackie. It's a great honor to be with everyone here today. I'm very honored to be on this panel. I was really inspired by my classes here at Stanford. I was an international relations major in my undergraduate years here. And I was walking across campus one day and asked, how do I become a diplomat? I don't think I'm cut out for academia necessarily, but I'd love to be in the room where the negotiation is happening. And one of my upperclassmen mentors said, you should take the foreign service exam. So I did. Um, I was accepted into the foreign service right after I graduated and moved to Washington um, in, in September of 2001. Uh, my first day at the State Department was September 10th. On the second day, I was evacuated from the training center in Arlington, Virginia, and we felt the plane hit the Pentagon. Um, and so those were very difficult days and challenged a lot of the assumptions that I had made about what life as an American diplomat would be like. Um, but that time also, that, that, that particular event also created a very um, sort of important sense of purpose and unity amongst myself and my colleagues as we embarked upon our careers. 9-11 was also very formative for me. This was the day I signed my uh, ROTC agreement um, oh, wow. in New York City. So it really has shaped a, a whole generation of foreign policy practitioners. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Now, Karen, how did you get to the State Department? Because you're, you're an academic. So what was the route that you took and what was the role that you played inside the State Department? My role starts, uh, or my pathway 
many years before, and you're right, I, I was and am an academic. Um, in 1989, January, um, I went on exchange from, from Harvard to Stanford to work with um, Secretary Rice on my dissertation. Um, by the end of the week, she'd been offered a job on the NSC staff by George H.W. Bush. And I thought, well, I don't have a dissertation advisor here. What do I do? I literally bumped into George Schultz and said, I'm writing a dissertation on U.S. Soviet detente. Can I interview you? And he ended up interviewing me and I did the research for his memoir. So I knew a lot about the State Department before I, I ever um, landed um, in, on the seventh floor. Um, and But I hadn't really thought about serving there during, during the George W. Bush administration. I was a Pentagon person for eight years on a variety of national security boards. But um, an, in an unusual move among Hoover fellows, I ended up on the um, Donald Trump campaign and um, on the State Department and NSC landing teams. And ultimately that led me to um, serving in the State Department. And then Jendai, you, are, you have an extraordinary regional expertise, um, which kind of like logically would have put you in the State Department, but you didn't start off there, correct? That's correct. All right, so I'd love to hear more about your path. Yeah, I, uh, it's it's um, very much uh, following Kyron's uh, path in the sense that I was, uh, you know, did my PhD at Stanford, um, so gained my expertise um, in terms of Africa and civil military relations. I was a student of Condi Rice, uh, PhD uh, under her, and then she went off, like Kyron said, <laughs> to, to government, and uh, but she stayed in touch, and I was able to maintain her as my uh, 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 faculty advisor. Um, she even paid money for me to make phone calls to DC at that time, which was really uh, quite generous. And you know, I, I you know I had a role model in uh, Condi Rice in terms of she went first to be an international affairs fellow working at the Pentagon. I followed right in that path as a Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellow. I'm working at the Joint Staff as a political military affairs officer in the Africa branch, the Europe Africa branch, and then went back to academia. And then um, when uh, Condi became the head of the uh, transition team or actually the national security advisor to uh, George W. Bush during his campaign, she involved me in that campaign. Uh, I then joined the transition team and she brought me in over at the NSC as senior director. When I was an international affairs fellow, I was at the Pentagon and as the, at the NSC as a director. So then I went over to become the senior director for Africa at the uh, NSC, at which point at some point, uh, Secretary Powell you know, did this thing like call me when we were in a meeting and I called him. And he asked me if I wanted to be an ambassador. And so really my first step into the State Department was uh, being the US ambassador to South Africa. And then Condi, when she became a secretary of state invited me to come over to be the assistant secretary. And so really uh, having the expertise, um, the experience that I gained as an international affairs fellow, and then the opportunity that came with an election to be a political appointee both at the NSC and then at the State Department. So that was my route. 
And then I guess the, the million dollar question is then how do you become secretary of state? And I'm sure that there are a bunch of, of women who are listening to this panel who are looking at you saying, how do I become like Secretary Rice? So I'd love to hear kind of that pathway as well. Yeah, well, let me just say two things that may be a little unexpected. Uh, one way that you become Secretary of State is you start as a failed piano major. And so I was actually in college. Uh, a piano performance major. And uh, fortunately for me, about halfway through college, recognizing that that was not going to be my profession, I wandered into a course in international politics. It was taught by Dr. Joseph Corbell, and I knew I'd found what I wanted to do. But the path wasn't, wasn't really uh, straight to becoming a Secretary of State, obviously. My first job in the State Department was actually as an intern. I was an intern in the State Department in 1977 in the Bureau of Cultural and Educational Affairs, uh, or Educational and Cultural Affairs. And so um, I used to give a talk when I was secretary and I would say, be good to your interns because you never know what's gonna happen. Um, my path is uh, not unlike uh, those of Chiron and uh, Jendai, and that is that uh, I started out as an academic. I was a professor at Stanford. Um, along the way, I met uh, General Brent Scowcroft, uh, who asked me um, after a while to become the special assistant to President George H.W. Bush for Soviet affairs. And it was the end of the Cold War. It was 1989 to 1991. And you get to know the president pretty well under those circumstances. And I got to know the, the Bush family very well. And when George W. Bush decided to run for president, he asked me to organize his foreign policy for the campaign. And uh, I did that. He then asked to be national security advisor. I was national security advisor for four years, including on September 11th, I think a searing time for all of us. And then when he was reelected, Colin Powell had said that he did not want to stay on. And so I'll sort of never forget walking into the Oval Office the morning after the election and the president saying, um, I want you to be secretary of state. And um, it's really kind of one of those moments where you think, is this really happening to me? And um, I became his secretary of state. And, and from then on, um, had the opportunity to be the country's chief diplomat, uh, to be um, a member of actually the president's cabinet, the first member of the president's cabinet, because secretary of state was the first position that the founding fathers created. They created four right at the beginning, secretary of state, secretary of the treasury, uh, what was then attorney general, and then what was called secretary of war at the time. And so uh, it's a special role to be secretary of state. And you might notice when there's a state of the union address, the secretary of state leads the cabinet. Uh, to hear the president, and that's why. And then just one more little funny thing about being Secretary of State. Um, you are also the notary of the country because you are the keeper of the great seal. And so any important document has to be, uh, the great seal has to be affixed and the Secretary of State signs. And that's everything from commissions for people who are being appointed as Secret other cabinet officers or uh, to various commissions to the Louisiana Purchase, which was also signed by James Monroe, to Richard Nixon's resignation letter, which was signed by Henry Kissinger. So the Secretary of State, um, I think, is in some ways a very special role because it's been there since the uh, existence of our country. 
that might be a good segue to kind of where I want to go next, because I think in some ways, when people think of the State Department, it's a little bit like a black box. Um, there's probably like fancy diplomat parties and then people go and have talks around big, you know, tables. And I think beyond that, it's actually really difficult to understand like what day-to-day -day diplomacy looks like. And especially as we're sitting in the midst of an extraordinary crisis in which the State Department is, is no doubt playing a very large role. I thought it would be interesting for us to walk through what like a day in your life would be in your particular role at State Department in a crisis, um, like the crisis we have now or a crisis that you experienced while you were serving. So Catherine, I want to start with you because you are the only one in the Foreign Service Officer track. And I think sometimes people get confused between kind of what Foreign Service kind of career State Department officials do and how that's different than maybe political appointees. Sure. Thanks, Jackie. Um, so Foreign Service Officers are a small but mighty bunch of uh, of career officials. There's only about 13,000 of us in total around the globe. Um, and we solve crises every day. Uh, for example, right now on the, with the conflict in Ukraine, we have teams of foreign service officers on the ground in Poland and Slovakia and neighboring countries. They're working to help evacuate US citizens that are fleeing the fighting. They're also liaising with the local governments and with international organizations like the International Red Cross and the UN to deal with the near over 2 million refugees now coming in, um, out of Ukraine. And um, so we have folks on the ground that are actually dealing with the physical crisis. We also have officers working 24 hours a day um, manning task forces in Washington that are keeping people like Secretary Rice and uh, SS Secretary Frazier and, um, and Dr. Skinner apprised of the latest information. They're dealing with folks around the globe um, manning the, the phone calls that our principals are making to other capitals. So that's also extremely important work. Um, and then we have our foreign service officers like myself, I focus mostly on Latin America and some in Eastern Europe. Um, we have folks, we have diplomats in every, every, every country establishing relationships. You referenced cocktail parties and jest, but we do do a lot of relationship building on the ground um, when we're overseas. So that when the crisis hits, we know who to call and who can um, who can help us. So we have um, seen, I mean, a this the sense of global unity that we have in response to Russian aggression, um, the robust sanction regimes that are in place now. I mean, that's that's certainly inspired by the Ukrainian people's demonstration of their love, freedom, and democracy. But it's also a great testament to the decades of diplomacy that we've been doing. In, in support of our democratic ideals and building that sense of, of common unity around, around these um, ideals. I think um, sec former Secretary Schultz, uh, certainly a Hoover luminary, truly understood the importance of working um, to tend the diplomatic garden. And I, I like to try to remember that when I'm overseas and sometimes the sort of day-to-day -day maintenance of relationships can seem tedious and, um, but it's, crucial when, when a crisis hits so that you know you can go in and talk to you know, the foreign minister or the president and say, we need you to vote with us on this re UN resolution, or we need you to make sure that your banks are implementing sanctions properly so that we can have a unified response to Russian aggression. Um, and so you know, every, every country literally has a way to support the people of Ukraine in this crisis, and our diplomats are in every country. 
working with them on a daily basis and encouraging them to do so. So it's really, um, it's really a, a crisis is a great example to understand the importance of sort of long-term diplomatic relationships. Jenda, uh, you have an interesting relationship because you've served both as an ambassador and as an assistant secretary. So you, you know, what is that, what is that role? You know, how is an ambassador different than the foreign service officers? And then what is it like um, to be in that position of leadership as an assistant secretary when a crisis erupts? Um, you know, what does that look like? Well, I think Catherine, um, uh, said it very well. The ambassador's role is really to establish those relationships and to basically have a, we use the old word Rolodex, you know, that has every single senior official um, in that government, but not just government to government relations, but also relations with key people in business, in civil society you know, to have a broad range of relationships within that country that the United States can learn information from, leverage when necessary. Um, you know, so I think that the ambassador's role is absolutely critical in a crisis because that's the person on the ground that you're relying on to be able to um, call whomever you need to. As assistant secretary, you're pretty much on point um, particularly during a crisis in a region. And, and so, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, before you even get in the field, which is where I used to love to be as assistant secretary, I love the shuttle diplomacy um, that's necessary. But, you know, even with when you're still at State Department, you know, you're doing your morning briefings with your own team to find out what's happening. Then you go up to the secretary's briefing and she'll be asking you questions about what's going on, what do you know. You're also convening meetings of the interagency to try to get the U.S. government on, you know, all parts of the U.S. government um, on board with whatever approach you're going to take, whatever strategy you're going to develop and policies that you're going to enact. And so there's a, a role for you both at home, at State Department, and then you're more than likely going to be pushed out on a plane. You know, I remember when uh, the crisis happened in Kenya in 2007, there was a tremendous election violence here uh, between the two parties. They couldn't agree on who had been elected. And unfortunately, the Independent Electoral Commission ultimately said they didn't know. And so it went to a violence in the street like Kenya hadn't seen before. And in that case, it was very fast breaking because it was immediately after the election. There wasn't that much time to do the whole policy process in Washington. Um, and instead, I had to rely on Condi's relationship with President Bush and my relationship with her and my understanding of Kenya, which I was fortunate I had gone to school here. I knew the place very well. And we had an extremely connected and activist ambassador on the ground, Ambassador Rannenberger. And so I got on a plane, an empty plane, because no one was going to Kenya at this time. And it was really shuttle diplomacy between the various parties, you know, trying to find out where their red lines were, what their main interests were, what their main concerns were. Um, not only talking to the, the protagonists, the two political parties and their leaders, which included the president of the country, but also um, talking to, as I said, you know, the business leaders who were a key part of the equation in Kenya. 
you know, and then getting in front of the press and talking to the international press that's interested in what is America's position on this. And it's, it's, it's amazing how much influence and power the United States has um, in these crises. People look to the United States to be a provider of a solution, you know, to bring uh, a, about some type of settlement, some type of negotiation. Um, but it's not only within the country. You also have to deal with the regional leaders that have influence on that leadership or on that country. And so, you know, getting on the phone with the heads of state, for instance, in the Kenya situation with Uganda and in um, with Tanzania, you know, some of the other countries that are bordering uh, Kenya and are impacted by the crisis that's taking place in this country. And so it's really... You know, it's quite exciting. Um, there's high, high stakes. Um, your words are hung, you know, people hang on your words. Um, the things that you say can make policy on the, on the, you're right in front of the press and they push you on a question. And next thing you know, you've made policy, you know, back in Washington. So you have to be careful as well with what you say in these crises. But you know, I think the important thing is that America has a major role as a superpower in resolving these types of crises. But Kyron, when you're working in D.C. in policy planning and advising, what does that look like during a crisis? Um, well, I have to say serving in the Trump administration is an outlier from what I've heard so far. So I think the what sounds like a, a, a straightforward question that you're you're asking, is it really straightforward for the administration in which I served? And I don't think it was, it's just the State Department. I think it was across the interagency. Um, most days were a crisis in the Trump administration, but not an international crisis. It was a something like an insurgency, a group of people for the most part who'd not served in government before, um, who had a radically different point of view um, than kind of establishment bipartisan elites. Um, there were many of those in the administration, but there was something of a, a civil war going on um, among and between the political appointees. And when a new administration comes in, typically there is a dance between the careers and the political appointees. And they figure each other out, I would say in six months or so, and they don't always agree but they come to a good truce and they work together. I think that's happened most of the time at the State Department, um, even though there will always be some tension. Um, but this was different. That um, particular um, um, dance um, never got resolved, but it wasn't the most important one. It was between the pro-Trump and never-Trump political appointees. Um, and most of the pro-Trump ones just hadn't been in government. Many didn't have a policy background. Um, and so I think that was difficult. So you had these civil wars going on, the political appointees divided, the um, careers mapping what the political appointees were doing. And then this other dimension of bipartisan and transnational elites who were saying to um, many of those quote unquote never Trumpers just hang in there, this will be over soon. That's a difficult way to do diplomacy. 
And what I found um, much of my job was job descriptions go out of the window in that environment. Um, I um, have never taken a psychology course in my life. I never wanted to be a psychologist. I became something of a therapist for our, um, our, our partners and friends abroad. And I think I had a unique credibility with them because I was one of the few who'd been on the campaign and transition. And I would just say, let's hold hands. We will, um, we believe in the same, we have the same values, especially with the NATO partners and other, other close allies. Um, and we, we share principles and values and history. Um, and we will um, get through this period and you will see that um, it will work. And so I found myself doing some of that. And I thought I have a skill that I never thought I had. Um, and I think sometimes it worked, but my job really was to do big think um, for the State Department. And what I realized um, in that role, and I consulted closely with Secretary Rice before I, I took it on and she said, don't go too far out into the uh, future because your principal um, can't think beyond six months. So if you find yourself writing papers about 20 years from now, they may never get read, um, except by historians 20 years from now. Um, and I found that it was difficult, um, not because of the Trump administration and its uniqueness, but the pace and the demands of US foreign policy, just as Jindai talked about, everyone turns to the US. There's just not the capacity between the kind of think tanks at state and NSC, so to see it, strategic planning um, directorate when it has it, to keep, um, to keep the principals engaged in what does this mean for the future? They're trying to get through the day and get some coherence. So trying to find a way to influence their thinking with a little bit more long-term, a little bit more grand strategy it's really hard, and I don't think anyone's cracked the code because the pace has only gotten faster, more demands, and diplomacy is different. State is still organized in regional and functional bureaus. I sometimes wonder if we need to rethink the whole organization of the building, um, given the challenges that we're facing. So just one example, and I'll stop. I did a lot of talking about the rising um, power of the global South uh, while I was at state. And I think I was the only one who would talk about that. But what does that mean in a building where you've got the regional bureaus really separated? And then on top of them, you've got um, envoys for every major crisis and they are disconnected from the bureaus. So if you're talking about something that is bringing countries like Brazil, Nigeria, um, you know, India together, it's hard when just bureaucratically to even think along those lines. I think that's actually a really, really nice pivot um, because I think people often think of the role of Secretary of State of being one of these great men and you stand and you orate and you tell great foreign policy. But the reality is that it's the Secretary of State is in charge of a very large organization that has to bring together people who are career foreign service officers and political appointees to do something that is quite complicated. So Condi, I'd love to hear from your perspective, kind of what the role, the day-to-day -day of being secretary of state look like and how that changes and is different in a crisis. 
Well, in, in fact, because the United States is a global power, there is almost on any given day, there's some part of the world that is in crisis. And so uh, part of the problem for the Secretary of State uh, is, uh, as, as Kyron was saying, you're trying to keep, uh, keep tabs on a big global picture, but on any given day, there's a great big ball on your desk when you walk in. And I can guarantee you that for Secretary Blinken right now, it says Russia and Ukraine. And it's very hard to deal with anything else. And that brings me to a really important structural uh, point. When you are secretary, you had better have really good assistant secretaries for the regions so that while you're worrying about Ukraine uh, and Russia, somebody else is looking at what's going on in Taiwan and China. Uh, someone else is concerned about whether there's a, be a, about to be another bad election uh, in someplace in uh, Africa or Latin America that's going to change the course. And so I found that my, my superpower was really picking people who could do that and who had the standing in these uh, various regions to walk into the foreign minister when I couldn't be there because I was dealing with whatever the crisis of the day was. Jindai was my person in Africa. Um, I actually, uh, Catherine talked about the Foreign Service, with the exception of Jindai, who was a very, very highly regarded regional specialist for Africa, every other one of my assistant secretaries for the region were Foreign Service officers. And so uh, I didn't feel that I had this split between the political people and the foreign service officers. Everybody I felt was really uh, on the same team. So you come in, you've got to deal with the crisis. I can guarantee the secretary's on the phone constantly, whether it's to the Ukrainians or to the allies, you're trying to hold the allies together under a lot of pressure. Uh, the secretary of state really is kind of the 911. So something's gone bad and with one of the allies and you get uh, you talk with the president that day and he says well I think things are getting a little squishy in Germany so now you've got to be in touch with the Germans to make sure they're staying online you're trying to help the uh, ambassador to the UN how are we going to use the UN in this moment uh, to try to bring international pressure on the Russians to stop doing the things that they're doing. So you're trying to manage this crisis, but you'd better have other people who are looking at these other parts of the world. And I'll say one other thing about Jendai, when she talked about the Kenyan crisis, uh, she was on the ground for, I think, three weeks, really pushing the Kenyans as far as she possibly could working with Kofi Annan, who was the at time retired uh, Secretary General of the UN, who was trying to bring about an agreement. I was in Tanzania with the president and I got a call from Jindai that said, I think you can help here. And so I got on a plane and went to Kenya then to do the negotiations for bringing about a government of national unity. But I could not have done that without the groundwork that Jindai had been doing for uh, for three weeks. And so you have to, as secretary, you, you're so right, Jacqueline, people think, uh, Jackie, people think about the secretary standing there in great orations and shuttle diplomacy, but you had better have a great team. It's not just you. You'd better have a great team uh, that can work all of these issues while you're doing multiple other things. And I'll just make one other point about secretary of state, which is something that you're not doing as much of when you're in crisis 
but you also have a lot of representational functions uh, for the United States of America. So when there was a very bad earthquake in Chengdu in China, uh, I was dispatched to Chengdu to bring the condolences of the American people. I've gone to refugee camps uh, in, uh, in, the, uh, in Darfur, in Sudan, uh, to walk among refugees and to show that the United States is a caring uh, country. Uh, Jendai and I worked on the President's Emergency Fund for AIDS Relief, uh, which we would then go to Africa. And again, she would have laid the groundwork, uh, just like David Welch would have laid the groundwork in the Middle East when I had to go uh, negotiate on Lebanon. So uh, the point I really want to emphasize is you are the Secretary of State, but you are really leading a team and you'd better have a great team. I want to pivot now because each of you are um, substantive experts, experts in particular kind of foreign policy areas. And I, I want to pivot to something which I think is probably on the forefront of a lot of our minds. And I'll keep you on the hot spot a little, Condi, which is, you know, you started your career as an expert in the Soviet Union. Um, you've played a pivotal role in U.S. foreign policy towards Russia all throughout the 2000s. And I'm just interested in your perspective about what do you think has shaped the trajectory that's ended up where we are today? Yeah. Uh, I have spent a lot of time, as you said, uh, on um, global politics, but US-Russian relations in particular. And uh, I was the Soviet specialist at the end of the Cold War. And it was such a hopeful moment because after the Soviet Union collapsed, there was a lot of expectation that this was an opportunity for the Russian people to live in, in a democracy, to have their voices heard. And for a while, it looked as if we were getting there. Uh, they, they did have elections. They did have a freer press. Uh, they did have uh, reasonable relations uh, with their neighbors. But over time, um, the current president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, I think threatened by the fact that there were democracies growing up all around uh, Russia, uh, whether it was uh, in Poland or in uh, the Czech Republic or the Baltic states. And when it was clear that the Ukrainians were actually starting to succeed in their democracy, uh, Ukrainian economic growth was three and a half percent over the last several years. Uh, we have seen that the president that they elected, Zelensky, is really a leader of people. And Ukraine wanted one thing. They wanted to move closer to the West. Uh, yes, they wanted membership in the European Union. That was going to be a very, very long time coming. Yes, they wanted membership in NATO. That would have been a very, very long time coming, if ever. But Vladimir Putin was threatened by the idea that this that Ukraine might move further west, and he has a a kind of delusional Russian view that Ukraine is really a part of Russia. He gave this really odd speech in which uh, back in two thousand eight, in which he said, "Ukraine is a made up country. It." isn't really an independent country. Ukrainians are just Russians. Well, they are actually not. They have their own language. They have their own culture. They have their own history. And so uh, operating on that delusion that Ukraine's, Ukrainians wanted to be Russians, he, I think, and I hate to say this, but I think the two years of isolation in COVID uh, 
started to work a little bit against his rationality. He's not the same Vladimir Putin that I once knew. He's calculate. He's not calculating. He's uh, he's uh, unnervingly aggressive. He's not calculating. He uh, is erratic. And I think that he looked at this situation and said, "I can move now." And he underestimated the Ukrainian nationalism that he would meet up with. He overestimated his own armed forces, which they rebuilt with a lot of money for 24 years since the Georgian invasion and his military is not performing very well. And most importantly, he underestimated the unity that the West would achieve uh, if he tried to uh, absorb a country of 43 million people with military power. And so I think that's how we've gotten to where we are. Uh, I fear that it's a great tragedy for the Russian people because it's very hard to imagine, you know, we have these crippling sanctions on, on Russia, but I'm gonna tell you, Jackie, I, I saw a picture in the paper that sort of said it all. It was of these well-dressed Russians in a mall, a fancy mall, trying to get their money out of ATMs because they knew the banking system was collapsing. The Russian people in the last 30 years have become accustomed to a different life. I studied in the Soviet Union in 1979. Soviet citizens looked at their feet. They didn't travel. They were cut off from the world. For more than 30 years now, they have been a part of the world. And now they are being, because of the actions of this one megalomaniacal man, they're being cut off and sacrificed. And I wanna say one final thing. Um, I hope we can find a way to keep lines of communication open to the Russian people. Um, I think about the PhD candidate who I trained, who went back to Russia to be a part of the knowledge-based revolution in Russia. I think about uh, all of the students that have gone to schools at Stanford and Harvard and Yale and the University of Colorado and University of Iowa, you'd find them everywhere. And this isn't the Russia that they signed up for. And so um, I, I just wanna say, I feel for the people in the Department of State, particularly my successor a few times removed, uh, Tony Blinken, because there aren't any really good answers here. And this is when the job is at its hardest, uh, when you're trying to uh, balance uh, American values. And yet, you know, you have this huge security problem uh, in the center of Europe. I think everyone would agree that diplomacy has become central in this crisis. But I think one of the other things that we can all agree is that, um, and this is kind of a point of contention in political science, is that the individual leaders really matter. And especially when we're talking about the trajectory of Russia, you can't talk about that without Putin. So Kyron, you started your career looking specifically at individual leaders and, and Reagan in particular, and the role that leaders play in US foreign policy. So I'm, I'm interested from your perspective, are there lessons that you can take from your work on individuals in foreign policy that can help us better understand or even solve the crisis that we're in today? Um, yeah, I think that's a great question, and um, let me answer it, but relate back to something that Condi mentioned. She talked about the students that she trained um, from Russia, but she she also had one, and I don't know if she remembers, um, Ukrainian student, who we co-authored a book together, and um, 
he, um, it was, I think, to this day, and Bruce Bueno de Mesquita, who's at NYU, the um, titled Strategy of Campaigning Lessons from Ronald Reagan and Boris Yeltsin. I believe it's it was in, um, published in 2007. And I believe it's the only time that a sitting Secretary of State had a scholarly book to come out um, while in office. And she had the policy planning director at the time, Steve Krasner, vet the book. Um, and um, and we were able to get it published. So the, that student of Condi's is now a professor of political science, I believe, at Baylor. And so I've thought about Sergei um, Kudelia quite a bit as a Ukrainian. Um, but individuals do matter. And the one point that Condi made that speaks to the important of leader, um, importance of leadership is that you have to separate out the leader and his or her cronies from the people. And that's something Ronald Reagan talked about a lot. He said his, uh, his attack when he talked about an evil empire wasn't the Russian people or those in the Soviet bloc, but it was the evil in the, the government itself in Moscow. And I think that that's what's happening right now in this administration. I'm a Fox News contributor and um, I'm one of those contributors who doesn't like to throw flames at people, especially in a crisis. And I say all the time, our job now is to support our national government and what it's doing. Um, and I've seen repeatedly the administration attempt to separate out the Russian people from what is happening from their leadership and talk directly to the Ukrainian people and those in Russia. That's a key part of leadership, to know your audience um, and know as an American leader that the, your audience is really the world. Um, and so I'm trying to take principles from Reagan as I speak um, to the public and to the world about this crisis. And that's one of the key ones. And a related one is, and I've said this before on air, I feel like the West is back. Not that it ever went away, but in the 21st century, we've had some really big challenges. After 9-11, the George W. Bush administration had to develop some kind of strategic doctrine around the global war on terror. And then the Obama administration had to try to figure out um, something like a pivot to Asia, like we couldn't be bogged down forever in Middle East wars. And I think now we're trying to figure out what does it mean again to be the West? And the West is hard, it's not free, cost a lot, it's really hard work. And that's what we're seeing Zelensky is helping us get back to actually who we are. I wanna pivot just a little bit because we were supposed to get the national security strategy in January. And I think because of the current crisis, that's probably not going to come out. But I was interested, Jendai, from your perspective, because I think this is something that really does vary amongst all the administrations, is what role you think <laughs> should play in the national security strategy. If you were advising Biden's see as they're putting it together, how would you advise them about how to approach Africa and the priorities in U.S. national security? Um, they are working on it now. And I know the team that's putting it together um, at the National Security Council for the, the Africa team, and they're really outstanding. Um, you know, they have a strong history and a lot of experience in the U.S. government. So I, I have great expectations of what the Africa section of the national security strategy will be. Um, under this administration. 
I think that the most important thing and the thing that I thought about when uh, we were doing it for President Bush was that the Africa section has to reflect the overall principles of the president and of the administration. It can't be an outlier of those principles. And so that to me is the first most first and most important principle. Um, secondly, I think that um, we shouldn't think about Africa as separate. Um, I think I'll just give you an example. Um, under the national security strategy of um, President Clinton, Africa was put sort of, he ranked the regions with Europe and Asia being the most important in the Middle East and Latin America and then Africa. And Africa was considered a humanitarian interest um, of the US government. And that was very, that was to me very problematic because what it misses and what I think the Africa section has to reflect is that we have global challenges in the world and Africa is part of the global answer and solution to those challenges. You can't really talk about climate change or anything without talking about how Africa plays a role in that. It has these major force in Congo and in Gabon that are basically the lung of the world. Um, when you think about issues of uh, pandemic response, you have to bring Africa into the picture. When you think about issues of the global war on terrorism, you have to bring Africa in. And so what I think that if, even if we're talking about democracy promotion, you know, Africa's like 55 countries. Um, if you're talking about, and you know, I think that Catherine mentioned it about how do you get countries in the UN to vote for with the United States. There's 55 countries that are African in the UN General Assembly, you know, and at least two or three that are on the Security Council. And so if you're going to solve global problems and challenges, then you're going to have to leverage the relationships that you have in Africa to solve those problems. Um, and so I don't think that it should be seen as an appendage Often what happens when you're doing Africa is people say, well, what are U.S. interests in Africa, really? And I, my answer to that question is the same interests that we have around the world. You know, we may have different strategies, how we pursue it, different engagement. Are you going to deal with big anchor countries, small, stable democracies? There are many different ways that you can develop that strategy. But the interests are the same. Um, and the overall philosophy of the administration also has to be um, key. And so I, I, I took exception with the Trump administration's national security strategy on Africa. It reflected my point about the principles because a big principle of the Trump administration, rightly so, was that we needed to recognize the geopolitical competition, particularly with China. So I think they got that absolutely right. But Africa was the last chapter. It was the last two or three pages in the national security strategy. And the only two countries mentioned in that Africa section was the United States and China. And so they missed it on strategy. <laughs> you know, they got it right on, on, on you know, the overall principle, but which countries are gonna matter the most to us in pursuing our geopolitical competition? You know, what role does South Africa as a BRICS country play in that strategy? What role does Nigeria or Ethiopia, you know, so I think that you have to get a little bit more granular um, in developing each of those 
regional, you know, the regional uh, sections of the national security strategy, but that that section should reflect overall uh, big principles of the administration. Now, Catherine, you spent most of your time in Latin America and Middle East, but I noticed there's a thread across all of these countries that you've worked in, which is that you've spent your entire career working for human rights and the rule of law. Um, and I was just really curious what you believe your greatest success has been. And then on the flip side, what's been the greatest challenge? Sure. Well, unfortunately, I've never served in the Middle East. It's been uh, Europe and Latin America. I, I served most recently in the Dominican Republic and before that in Bolivia. And then prior to that, I was in Poland and Slovakia. Um, and my first tour was in Guatemala. So I've been all over the place. I've learned three different languages and I've spent most of my career overseas for the past 21 years. Um, and you're right, it has been a, a complete privilege. Um, I'm a political officer in the State Department. So we work a lot with foreign governments, but also with civil societies. And much of the work we've done has been sort of promoting freedom and um, democratic ideals overseas. Uh, one of my tours back in Washington, I was on detail to the Senate and I worked on the um, Sergei Magnitsky Rule of Law and Accountability Act, which provides the State Department and the Department of the Treasury the opportunity to freeze visas and assets of um, corrupt officials and known human rights violators. And I had the opportunity to actually use those sanctions in my, one of my most recent overseas tours in Latin America to go after individuals in the government who were um, who were guilty of egregious corruption. That was a great um, success to see something kind of come as a legislative tool that was very much a bipartisan effort in the Senate and actually see the implementation of it overseas in, in, in defense of our core interests. Um, on the ground, what this looks like as a, as a foreign service officer is I often am engaging with civil society actors and governments to help ensure that you know, their courts deliver verdicts that are based on evidence and facts rather than bribes and political influence. It's harnessing the power of the um, other members of the diplomatic community to, to, to stand up for those ideal, the ideals as well. Um, we also have worked with uh, in several countries uh, with the international community and um, the, our host nation counterparts on the execution of free and fair elections. That's a very powerful um, experience as, a, as an American diplomat. Um, some of this works really hard to quantify. It's very long-term for years. My team is working with the electoral authorities to make sure that they have the, the tools they need and the training that they need. Um, but then, you know, Americans can see that when they read about an election in Latin America where it's been peaceful and there was a transfer of power from, from one government to the next. Um, it's also incredibly rewarding when you see leaders make decisions to uphold democratic institutions instead of changing, for example, term limits for their own benefit. That's the, that's the outcome of, of sustained diplomacy um, in support of democracy overseas. I think that the greatest challenges in this area, unfortunately, might be to come. Uh, we really have to keep up our efforts to make sure that democracy is delivering benefits to citizens, um, particularly right now when our vision for the world is being challenged uh, by powerful autocracies. And I believe that this is more difficult for us as American diplomats to do when we're very divided at home. Um, I hope, I very much hope that the example that we're seeing right now in Ukraine where people are fighting for, for their existence as a democracy will motivate better cohesion here. Um, and because it's exposing so clearly what's at stake. Um, and so 
I'm inspired by this. And I very much hope that, um, as Chiron mentioned, that the West is back and that there's a resurgence of appreciation for our ideals and, and that the, the you know, difference between autocracy and democracy is made very clear. Um, because that will certainly that will certainly help us in, um, as we move forward. Well, on this International Women's Day, I would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about whether being a woman in this community is any different than the male experience, or whether being a woman in foreign policy leads to different sort of policy outcomes. You know, interestingly enough, today uh, Cheryl Sandberg. Um, gave a, a talk where she said that no two countries won by women would ever go to war. And I think there is this like general assumption that women are the peacekeepers. I mean, you look at programs that are kind of um, set up that women, peace and security. And then if you look at the academic literature on this, you know, that there's really not a little, not a lot of empirical evidence that supports that women really are the peacemakers. So uh, Rose McDermott, who's done work at Brown University, she links it actually to um, testosterone and makes a very interesting argument about menopause. Um, and then recent work by uh, scholars like Alex Stark actually runs a quantitative analysis of conflict and gender and finds that actually there's no statistical relationship between women leaders and conflict. So I wanna hear from your perspective, are women really the peacemakers? Is there a difference when it comes to gender and foreign policy? It is very female, though, for us to let everyone go first. That, I think, is actually yeah. uh, significant. Well, I'll, I'll go. I'll go. Um, I, I don't think that one can uh, draw uh, definitive or dispositive conclusions from somebody's gender when they're in a position. Because if you're the leader of a country, there are so many contextual factors uh, that... Uh, as to what your options are, uh, what your interests are, what your values are. And so um, I, you know, the wonderful experiment would be to take uh, the same set, uh, take the same, uh, take a woman and put her into very different circumstances and see if you got different outcomes. That's how we would do it as, as social scientists. But unfortunately, we can't do that. So when I look um, at whether women are peacemakers, I would say it depends on the circumstances. I don't think anybody would associate peacemaking necessarily with Margaret Thatcher. Uh, not that she went to war repeatedly, but uh, she was somebody who believed you had to use military force. And in fact, used it in an odd circumstance in the Falcons. So um, I don't think anybody would say that Golda Meir was just a peacemaker. Um, or for that matter, Indira Gandhi was just a peacemaker. And so it really much depends on the circumstances. The one thing that I think is different uh, among women, and you just said it, Jackie, I do think women listen better. Um, and I actually, as a, a diplomat, I always said that my most important goal was to, particularly if you're the Secretary of State of the United States, don't go in all guns blazing to put your position on the table first. If the American Secretary of State does that, that sort of shuts down the conversation. So I was very careful to let somebody else, maybe several other people speak first before I spoke. And that was both to open up the conversation so that people didn't feel constrained by what I said, because uh, as, as 
a number of people said the United States is maybe more powerful than we even want to acknowledge in that way. But also I could listen. I could listen to what the mood was in the room. I could listen to what I was hearing from um, adversary as well as from uh, friends. I could hear what the nature of the support might be. And then I could uh, use that to, uh, to begin to make a more compelling argument now that I had read the room. And so listening is actually a very important part of being a good diplomat. It also helps you to find where your interests might overlap. You know, the, the truth is you walk into the room, you don't really see that there's any place that your interests might overlap with. Uh, I used to do this with my, uh, with Sergei Lavrov, uh, who's gone a little bit off the rails here, but he used to actually be a, a really good diplomat. And I would listen and sometimes I would hear him say things that I could come back and say, well, are you saying if we did this, you would do this? And uh, so I do think women are better listeners. I've actually seen it in my classes, you know, before I can get the question out, the, the guys all have their hands raised um, and the girls are kind of sitting back and listening. So maybe the one thing that I think women do better is we listen a bit better, but I think it really very much depends on the circumstances as to whether women would, would uh, make peace or have to use military power. Kyron, do you have a... Um, a um, yes, it seems, uh, I think we're going to be on time soon, but you're just now getting to the good part. I know the substance of foreign policy is important. We talk about that all day. Um, but I know that there are a lot of young women and young students, men and women on this call. Some of them are my own. Um, I demanded that they join this conversation. And what I want to say, I think, um, again, having served in a unique administration um, at a unique time, what I learned at the State Department, and I don't think I even knew this as much in academics, having women role models in leadership really does matter. And I just watched people, both careers and political um, appointees get demoralized because by the end of the um, four years of the Trump administration, there were almost no women, um, ASs, assistant secretaries and um, unders, if any. And that actually has a chilling effect on people. And um, because I'm in an environment like Hoover, where we have a female director, where we have women fellows and it's a university, I wasn't really prepared um, for what I saw in that way. And I have a greater appreciation where women and racial minorities and leadership even if you don't get to know those individuals well, they matter. I can't tell you how many times I met career officials who were still talking about Colin Powell's tenure and how he would walk the halls and take the elevator and show up at random offices or how people had meetings where they got to meet Condoleezza Rice. And they were telling those stories as if they'd happened yesterday. And I think it matters. Yeah, let me let me jump in before we move off the topic. Um, a couple of things that I've noticed. One is when I was assistant secretary, we had to do evaluations of all of the ambassadors, and uh, they also got to put in what they thought was their higher their best qualities. And what I found was most of the men talked about all of their achievements and what they had done to advance our policy. Most of the women talked about what their teams had done. 
to advance the policy. Um, and I think that it makes a difference. And you, you heard uh, Condi just talk about the team that she put together when she was Secretary of State to be able to carry out American diplomacy. So I think that that matters. I also think women are very collaborative. Um, Condi was talking about it in terms of listening, but I think that listening facilitates uh, more collaboration. Um, so I think that that's a big part. And one of the things that I watched with Condi, and that goes back to the point that Kyron was making about role models, is when she was Secretary of State, she formed a, a coalition of women foreign ministers. Right? You know, and they had this informal back channel way of um, uh, operating and collaborating and and working out problems. Um, and I think that that I haven't seen men do that type of thing. You know, we always talk about men in the back room, but it was actually the women foreign ministers who were in the back room, you know, making decisions um, and, you know, to support the interests of their governments um, using uh, a different type of uh, a, a, association and collaboration. So I, you know, I do think that I don't, I, I agree with Condi that we can't attribute gender because countries have interests and you're there as an official representing your country's interests. Um, but I, I would say we just need more data points. And so what we need is more women leaders so that we can actually suss this out. Catherine? Yes, um, I agree completely with what you said so far. I also just think that when Secretary Rice was at the State Department, um, she initiated the in 2007, the International Woman of Courage Award. And for me, every year, so every year, my teams and I and, our, and my counterparts around the world nominate courageous women to receive this award. They get to come to Washington. They're recognized if they win for their region. And what that experience has always highlighted to me is how women are change makers and are so pragmatic. Oftentimes, they're excluded from government structures just because you know misogyny is real around the world and, and gender imbalance is, is significant. But a lot of women leaders around the world, they're not necessarily parts of government, but they're change makers in their society and they're, they're very pragmatic and hardworking, entrepreneurial and brave. Um, and so I'm proud that we, we do that work to recognize women leaders, even if they're not part of government. Um, and I, I don't necessarily think that women are only peacekeepers. We've seen, we've seen lots of um, women in Ukraine willing to fight for a righteous cause. So I think that, um, that what we've done recently in US government circles, thanks to um, Secretary Rice's leadership is really recognized the different ways in which women can be leaders and bring about change in their societies. I wanna to move to something that kind of um, has been a big transition to me when I left the military. So when I was in the military, we all wore kind of the same uniform and the uniform really provides your resume. So it says I'm an officer, it says kind of how many years I'm in, any awards, medals. Um, I don't feel like I actually got a lot of um, comments about my appearance when I was in the military. Um, but when I transitioned to academia and then, you know, kind of more of a forward facing um, persona, there were a lot of comments and about how I appeared um, and whether I appeared young or not young, or, I mean, there's whole conversations that just didn't exist when I was in the military. And, and so I wanna ask you about, are, are there unique challenges for women in foreign policy and how they present themselves? And I, I remember 
a picture of Dr. Rice, which must have been from the mid 2000s, because this is like my, my peak time period where I was following all these things. And she, you had this, this sharp black jacket and then um, like knee high boots. And it got like this undue amount of attention. I mean, it was a sharp fashion choice. And I thought, well, that's like kind of unfair. It's very unfair. Um, so I'm interested in kind of how, how do women navigate these expectations about appearances, especially, you know, in foreign policy? I see, Karen, you have your hand up. Yeah, I was, uh, I'm so glad you asked that question because I was thinking about back to Madeleine Albright and she um, came to Pittsburgh a number of years ago and it was a big deal and she gave a talk and um, many of my students attended. And she told stories and she said they're in her, in her, her books as well about how her appearance was a factor in the discussion about her becoming secretary of state. And she was very open about it. And um, the, her, her appearance, and there were conversations about her intelligence. Um, and this is a, a woman who raised a family who has a PhD, who was a longstanding and popular professor at Georgetown on media and politics. And I think she was the beginning of the turn. I don't think you could get away with that now. Um, and, um, but the challenges that she said she faced seem almost unimaginable to me. And it wasn't that long ago. I do think there has been a shift. I think having um, Condoleezza Rice as Secretary of State settled uh, um, some other questions around um, a black woman being in, um, in, in, in the line for the presidency. Um, Condi's the first, um, by the way and um, the way that she performed and carried herself. Um, what I do think women, you don't have a lot of margin for error and everything you do wrong gets a bit more magnified than it should be and people feel at liberty to do that. Um, and for that reason, I've been incredibly sympathetic to V. POTUS um, and, the, um, and the criticism she's um, facing from lower level staff they feel empowered to do it in a way that they would not do it um, to a man. And I think that's what we face more now than the discussion about how short is our skirt. Well, if I could, if I could make just three really quick comments. Uh, yes, the, the boots and the black uh, outfit. I, I got up that morning and we were in Germany and uh, Sean McCormick, who was my uh, press guy, said, uh, you're on the front page of the Washington Post. And I said, I didn't say anything yesterday. Why am I on the front page of the Washington Post? Apparently, I'd worn a Matrix-like outfit, and that was for a lot of comment as to what I was trying to do. I wore the boots because it was cold. It was actually pretty, pretty simple. Um, a second kind of uh, vignette is that um, I, I was uh, doing a, a Vogue uh, photo shoot, and they brought all these clothes. And I said, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm not a dress-up doll. All right. I'm going to wear my own clothes. And so I did. But then I did say, but, you know, that suit could be mine. I kind of like that. In other words, my third point is I kind of had fun with it. You know, uh, I actually didn't worry about it too much. Uh, if people wanted to comment on what I wore, OK, fine. That's your problem, not mine. I've got serious work uh, to do here. Um, I did uh, try very carefully uh, to strike a balance between 
uh, you know, being appropriately dressed. I'll tell you what's really hard if you're if you're a woman and you're traveling all the time, and you're going to go from the house of the foreign uh, foreign minister to meet the president of a country, and then you're going out to be with a refugee uh, in a refugee camp. Kind of how do you make that transition? Um, and I have one uh, piece of advice for women diplomats um, in this regard. Always take a black pantsuit because there was the day that I was in Japan and I was just secretary. I'd only been secretary for a short period of time. And I realized that we were going to sit on the floor in Japan and I was wearing a dress. Not great. I never traveled again without a black pantsuit. Yeah, to this day, my dad will watch these Zooms and be like, you're looking a little young. Maybe we need that. You need to kind of like put some padded shoulders on. <laughs> <laughs> so very cute. <laughs> Let me just say on that point, um, the, the, the things that I found was that very point, which was being taken serious when you were considered young, in, in particularly if you look young. You know, and my way to counter that was always when I especially met with other heads of state or foreign ministers was to bring the greetings of the president and the secretary of state to the meeting. So they knew that I was representing someone other than just myself, but I was carrying the message, you know, of, of my senior leadership. Um, but I definitely did face you know, this feeling that what's this young girl doing here telling us what to do? I, I think President Robert Mugabe said some nasty things about me along that line, but I just felt that I was whooping him. That's why he had to, you know, disparaging comments because, you know, the shuttle diplomacy was having an impact on, on him, you know, to our favor. I have to I want to just relate one point about this because it comes a little bit to and how mentors can convey their own authority on younger people because um, I, I was very young when I became provost of Stanford. I was 38 years old. I'd never been a department chair. And then, um, but I had been the special assistant for President George H.W. Bush. And I'll never forget, we met Gorbachev for the first time. And President Bush walked over with me and he said, President Gorbachev, this is Condoleezza Rice. She's a professor at Stanford. She's my Soviet specialist. And she tells me everything I know about the Soviet Union. Now, I speak Russian and I heard Gorbachev say something like, well, I hope she knows a lot or something like that. But um, President Bush was actually not saying that for Gorbachev. He was saying that for the other people in the room. He was saying uh, she might look different and she might be young, but I listened to her, so you'd better listen to her too. And so um, as a mentor, I think you can, uh, particularly with younger people who are in these positions, you can convey a little bit of your authority on them and help them to uh, get to the point that uh, that they're, quote, taken seriously. Uh, so, you know, everybody in Africa knew that Jindai spoke not just for me, but for President Bush. And uh, there just wasn't ever going to be a question about that. I do think that secretaries and presidents and others need to be very careful that they convey that the people who are out there in the field are really speaking for them. You know, I think it's interesting. There is... Um this idea of uh, wonder kid, right? So like 
Don Rumsfeld can be Secretary of Defense at 43. And that's not like, wow, he's so young. It's, oh, wow, look, he's so young, like wonder kid, amazing, right? And you had this like coterie of, of young men, especially in the, in the Defense Department, that it was really kind of an accolade that they were so young and so successful. But that is a word that seems to be a bit gendered and actually does not translate very well um, to the female side of the house. Kyren, you had your hand up. Um, yes, I just want to speak to a point that um, um, building on something Condi just said, and I think it's true. I think it is um, the mentor or the principal in the environment um, that makes the difference, especially for women, whether they're younger or not as young um, in high level diplomacy. And um, the mentor does not have to be a woman. Um, you can, some of the most radical feminists are men. Um, and I think a lot of men start out as, as, you know, maybe not so much on the feminist side, but have a daughter by the time she's 18, they may be um, the best boss you can possibly have because they want every possibility for her. And I think having more of that is important. And a mentor who not just helps you get a job and um, has a title, but who goes all the way to the wall um, when you need that person. That sends shockwaves through a bureaucracy. You know, not if you're doing something evil or if you know, you're doing something illegal, um, but as you're trying to build and, def and, and defend your country, when that principle goes all the way to the wall, you will see a very different treatment of women overall people of color overall. And we need to get back to that. And so, um, and I think Condi was unique in that way. I don't think that there has been, um, and I'm not trying to have a love fest here, um, with that kind of leadership at state since she left. Catherine, your hands up. Yes, um, I would was just gonna offer a slightly alternate perspective as a career diplomat. I joined the State Department when I was 22 and was often the youngest person in several missions as I moved through the ranks. Um, I found that one of the, the sort of blessings and curses of the State Department is it's incredibly hierarchical and bureaucratic and under uh, foreign counterparts often know our bureaucracy as well. And so when I came in with my title of, you know, first secretary or a counselor for the embassy or what, whatever my diplomatic title was, that also helped convey or, or confer respect to me so that foreign interlocutors in particular listened to what I had to say because they understood that I was presenting the U.S. government position and that I was the person, you know, relaying their information about them back to Washington. And so um, perhaps it's different in other fields, but in diplomacy, because it's pretty regimented and you have various levels, um, that always, that helped me a lot in particular when I was a younger diplomat. I want to grab some of the questions in the audience because there's some really good ones. And the first one I want to ask um, is how have things changed for diplomacy and since the advent of the digital age? Um, you know, how are the we talk a lot about information narratives and social media, but really kind of and everything has changed since it's gone to ones and zeros and binary. So I'd love to hear your perspective on that how uh, the digital revolution has changed diplomacy. I, I would just say I'm really glad that I that the social media was not a big deal when I was Secretary of State because uh, it is 
just so difficult because, uh, you know, it, part of the problem in diplomacy is you've got all these different audiences and you're trying to control the narrative. And now with social media, you've got just two, everybody's a reporter, everybody's a commentator. And so the, the key, I think, is to try to learn how to use social media, because if you don't use social media in diplomacy, you're not going to reach uh, whole segments of the population who are younger. Uh, you know, my, my students have never seen a television, I don't think. They don't watch television news. They get all their news from social media. And so I think the trick that dipl diplomats are going to have to learn to do is how to take what can have a very big downside on the, on the social media side uh, for control of the message and use it more effectively uh, to, uh, to, to bring messages. So I think the digital age uh, and just the speed, you know, the speed with which messages fly uh, already. If you're the Secretary of State, you know, you've got people in every time zone known to humankind, and you're already behind the news cycle that if something happens out in the Middle East, and somebody has to wait for clearance in Washington to say something, you're already way behind the power curve. Well, think it, multiply that many, many times by what's going on with uh, with the, the digital age. And I think you'll see that the, I think the, um, the challenges have just multiplied. Kyron, I mean, you served in the last few years, I'm sure. I, I, I have to imagine diplomacy um, in the last few years has really been upended by the changes in how we propagate information. Um, I think so at a couple of levels. One, and this is going to sound kind of unbelievable, but in some conversations I had, and these, I don't think this is going in a classified realm with diplomatic security, they had a much more difficult time catching up to um, some of the younger people in the building who would want to leak things to the press because they couldn't trace it by their emails because people would just take screenshots, sometimes with their cell phones. So there was really no way. And I just thought, you know, five years ago, this must have been inconceivable. Um, but the ways that you could use even low-level technology to do things that where you wouldn't get caught, I think was something that was mystifying the 55 and 60-year-old diplomatic security officer where they would just throw up their hands and say, you know, this leak is so low-level anyway, but someone would have taken a screenshot. So I think that that has had an impact and younger people see technology. I think it divorces you from morality sometimes. I don't know how we build that back in. But also um, our diplomacy has been challenged in trying to deal in the cyber age. And uh, we worked really hard to get a cyber bureau and didn't. I think the Biden administration has stood, finally stood one up. Um, and that's critical because misinformation and disinformation around the world are now part of the um, toolkit that we have to deal with. And I think our diplomacy is just behind in figuring out uh, how to address these disinformation campaigns, the deep fakes that look really real and, you know, have could have a Secretary Rice talking when it's really not her. So I think we're trying to catch up, but I was surprised how far behind we actually were in the use of these new social media and cyber technologies um, to influence um, policy and outcomes. And I will say on that note, I found it's a little bit confusing kind of what is um, information shaping and what is diplomacy? 
And then as like the Department of Defense increasingly kind of gobbles up information operations, the line between kind of what really should be a State Department role and, and what is a CIA role or a Department of Defense role, that seems to be very, very confusing these days. Yeah, I think it is, Jackie. And I will say this, uh, whatever the medium, so it was, you know, radio for Europe, and then it was television broadcasts, and now it's social media. Um, I've been asked many times, you know, why doesn't the United States shape the narrative better? And people mean, why don't you have your own propaganda out there? Um, and I would say the United States has always been best when it's just telling the truth. The reason Radio for Europe and Voice of America worked so well was that we were broadcasting to populations that knew they weren't getting the truth about their from their governments. And so just telling them the truth was enough. Uh, one of the, my favorite stories recently was in Beijing, the government used to uh, publish these uh, reports on how many, what the particular particular uh, in the air was so that, you know, what was the air quality? And uh, we just outside the embassy, we put out a monitor and the monitor was showing a wild divergence from what the government was saying and what was actually there. Well, this became a real problem for the government because everybody knew they couldn't breathe in Beijing. And they knew that if what the government was saying about air quality was true, that they would have been able to breathe in Beijing. And so sometimes I think when we talk about public diplomacy or setting the message, we have in mind something very good at. What we're very good at is trying to get the truth to uh, populations who otherwise would not, would not hear it. I want to take one more question from the audience, and this is a really broad one. But what is the role that diplomacy plays in avoiding war? and then in war termination. And I think this is very apropos today, um, but it might be helpful to understand kind of what are those mechanisms. Yeah. Kind of, you wanna start us off? Oh, sure, first? I'll start. Yeah. Well, you always, anybody who thinks an American president wants to go to war has never been with an American president. That is the most devastatingly difficult decision that any president can make. And so, uh, avoiding war becomes uh, absolutely critical. And uh, the, the president looks to um, his secretary of state essentially to be in the lead for that. And uh, I will say that uh, with the might of the United States behind you, uh, it's not a bad thing to have military power in the background while you're trying to, uh, uh, to deter war. And we sometimes confuse that, that there's military power and there's and there's uh, diplomacy, but I call it coercive diplomacy. You actually want your adversary to think that you might use force in order to try to get to a solution. Once something has broken out though, uh, the, the diplomat is really constrained in trying to get the parties to see a path forward for stopping the war. Um, I, and it can get quite personal. Uh, the war in Lebanon in 2006, I remember coming home and seeing a runner on the CNN broadcast that said there was a poll to see if I could go stop the war. And I thought, okay, well, this is getting kind of personal. Um, but in fact, I was shuttling back and forth between the, the Israelis and the Palestinians. And, and, and that's where having others help you, uh, the European Union or whatever can be very, very helpful. But I'll tell a little story about the ending the Georgian war because maybe since it involves the Russians, it's, uh, it's more uh, apropos. 
in 2008, when the Russians invaded Georgia, we had uh, two strategic objectives. Don't let them get to Tbilisi and don't let them overthrow the Saakashvili government. And uh, they are today in Abkhazia and in uh, South Ossetia, but they're not in Tbilisi. And you could see those people in the streets of Tbilisi uh, protesting the war against the Ukrainians. And the Georgians have had their, are independent and have the democratically elected government. So the one, first thing I'd say, you have to determine what you're trying to do. The first thing is, what is it you're trying to do? And then the second thing I'll, put about, I'll say about that is uh, watch your words. So the Russian foreign minister called me, Sergei Lavrov, and he said, there are three conditions to stop this war. One is the Georgians have to go back to their barracks. I said, fine, done. He said, the second is they have to sign a no use of force pledge. I said, fine, done. He said, the third is just going to be between us. Misha Saakashvili has to go. And I said, Sergei, the Russian foreign minister and the American secretary of state don't have a secret conversation about overthrowing a democratically elected president. I said, what's more, when I get off this phone call, I am going to go and I'm gonna tell everybody that I know that that's what you just said to me. And he said, no, this is between us. I said, no, it can't be. So I did, I called everybody, we went to the UN, we exposed what the Russians were intending to do. I think sometimes, again, your best, your best strategy in circumstances like this, if you run into something like that, expose it. And I have to say here, I think the Biden administration has done a really good job in the use of intelligence to expose the Russians as to what they're going to do before they do it. And I really think it has Vladimir Putin spitting nails to wonder who around him is telling us what uh, they're going to do. So you, you have a lot of tools in your toolbox, but the most important thing I would say is be absolutely sure of what it is you're trying to do and, uh, and be truthful in, uh, in communicating about it. Um, I think in terms of, you know, diplomacy, it's so important. It's all often hard to define. And people think once a war starts, um, the diplomats move out. Um, you never stop talking. And that's really important to remember. And the talking comes in different ways. I remember when I was preparing to go to the State Department, Secretary Rice said to me, um, bring your network to bear in support of your principal. So it wouldn't mean that I would be on the plane all the time or that I would be in the middle of a crisis. But what you do on track two at different levels with the think tanks, with the research centers, your relationships become really important. And when you have great ones going into government as a political appointee, it, is, it can be really helpful at a time of crisis um, because you never, can, you never want to stop talking. And, um, and so I think that that's something to remember. And I think now probably in the Blinken State Department, um, track two is coming back but we lost that connective tissue even to Washington. And I think it hurt us. Um, you need a lot of friends when you're in government and you can't leave them behind. Well, on that note, we're almost at the end. And I like to do lightning okay. rounds where we ask extremely complicated questions that require a lots of preamble and nuance, but we don't give the opportunity. Um, so I'm gonna go through these questions and then I'd like to get kind of just your off the cuff response. Um, I'll ask the first one and we'll start with um, Catherine. So 
a lot of what people know about the State Department comes from Hollywood. So uh, Madam Secretary, if you watch, you know, um, The Crown, you saw it kind of from the British perspective. So who would play you in a depiction of your time in the State Department? We'll start with Catherine. Oh, this is a funny one. Um, well, I'd like to say Catherine Hepburn because my mom named me after my great grandmother, Lodima Catherine, and spelled it like Catherine Hepburn, but she's no longer with us. Um, so I'd have to say Reese Witherspoon. She was at Stanford right before I was, and her classic Legally Blonde came out right as I was entering the State Department. So I'll go with her. All right, Jindai? I don't have an answer. Uh, on the Madam Secretary, there was an Assistant Secretary for Africa, often. It was, the role was repeated, but the character was based on Linda Thomas-Greenfield. Our, uh, our ambassador to the UN. Um, they actually talked to her before they, they built the character. Um, so it's been done already. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's a punt. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Condi. Um, I want Haley Berry to play me. Oh, oh, I think we should sign her up right now. <laughs> Kyron? Um, this is a hard one. And so I'll give a, a kind of crazy answer and just kind of um, flip the gender on this. But a, a colleague of mine from the State Department recently said, you're the Kevin Durant of, of, <laughs> of diplomacy. And I don't, I think I get what she means, um, but I won't go there in this conversation. So <laughs> I think I'm a female Kevin Durant. And for those of you who don't know basketball, look him up. <laughs> I wonder what he would be like in a movie too. Um, okay, so I'll start with Karen. We'll go the other direction. So this one's pretty easy. Lean in. This was, you know, okay, this is the um, Cheryl Sandberg or are you more Anne-Marie Slaughter? Women can't have it all. I'm lean in. All right. Have Candy. it all. Have it all. Jindai, right? Oh, Jindai? Lean in. Lean in. Okay. Condi, did we get you? Lean in. Okay, lean in. Catherine? Um, I think we can have it all, but we have to manage our own expectations of what success looks like. Um, I'm a mom, wife, and leader, and it's a constant struggle. I've been really blessed to have a supportive network and that helps tremendously. And I've made sometimes decisions that didn't necessarily catapult me to the top of the foreign service, but have made sense for my family. So I think that lean in, but be realistic. And kind of better childcare in general will be more helpful for everyone to lean in. Absolutely. All right, who is your foreign policy role model? Jindai, we'll start with you pretty easy. She's on this panel. <laughs> That's Condi, right? <laughs> Mentor and role model, no question. Condi? Uh, it's uh, actually a, a president of a country who Jindai knows very well, uh, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, um, who um, sometimes looked like she was going to just take her country by the ear if necessary and uh, lead it to peace. Kyron? Um, I, well, I think mine is on, on the panel, and I'll say the reason th that actually happened, when I was about 23 years old, I was um, getting ready to take my oral exam, general exam, for the doctoral program in government at Harvard. And that morning, when I woke up, um, I picked up the Boston Globe, and Condi Rice was on the front page. 
And so um, a young assistant professor, Russia specialist, I said, that's really amazing. So, you know, we didn't have cell phones back in that day. So I called her and she um, was a visiting fellow, I think at Hoover. Um, and um, we met and I said, you'll be on my dissertation committee. And that's how it all started. All right, Catherine. Uh, well, I'm going to continue the chorus. Uh, I have a photo of myself at age 26 briefing Condi when she was the Secretary of State and I was a desk officer. So anyone who's ever been in my office knows that she is my role model. Um, and I'm so grateful for how gracious and wise she's been um, and what an example she is. I also really look up to um, current director of the CIA, Bill Burns, who is an outstanding career diplomat. And um, lesser known figures like uh, there's a woman named Phyllis Oakley who was a female officer who had to quit the State Department when she got married and then rejoined in the 70s and had a terrific career as um, as a half of a tandem couple, which is uh, what my husband and I are doing. So uh, there's a lot of great role models out there, but Condi certainly tops the list. Well, I want to thank all the panelists for this extraordinary conversation um, and for the privilege on my part to get to spend an hour and a half of my International Women's Day with such an extraordinary group of women. So thank you so much. Um, I'm sure that there will be a reconvening in a year, but in the meantime, um, women will have to go forth and, uh, you know, save the world from warfare, apparently. Thank you. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you so much. Happy with International Women's Day. Happy with you. Mm -hmm.